Hi, I'm Frederick Karras, co-founder and COO of Okta, a public software company that specializes in enterprise identity. And I'm Joshua Davis, co-founder of Epic Magazine, a media company that shares incredible true stories from around the world. Welcome to the first episode of Zero to IPO, a podcast that's going to take a look at startups, technology, and entrepreneurship a little differently. Over the next 12 episodes, you're going to hear from some of the most successful, innovative, and determined business people from Silicon Valley and around the world. Our mission here is simple. We want to give you a real sense of what it's like to be in the trenches day to day while you're trying to take your genius idea that might change the world and turn it into a successful, profitable business. In each episode, we'll look at a different stage in the growth of a company and tackle it from a bunch of different perspectives. Successful founders have to be innovators, so we figured that the best thing to do would be to hear firsthand how different people approach similar problems. We're not trying to tell you how to do it or even how not to do it, but we're going to show you how some really successful people have done it and also how they probably shouldn't have done it. If you're thinking of starting a business or in the middle of launching a business, or even if you've already been through it and are looking to what comes next, we hope that you come away from this series motivated, entertained, and most of all, inspired. This is Zero to IPO. So after telling you what this series is going to be about, we're going to throw our own rules out the window for the very first episode. Today, we're going to be talking with Mark Andreessen, and only Mark Andreessen. Mark isn't just any entrepreneur, and we figure if anyone has earned an entire episode to themselves, it's him. He's the co-author of Mosaic, co-founder of Netscape, co-founder of Opsware, and co-founder of venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz. He's also the guy who penned the very influential op-ed, Why Software is Eating the World in 2011. He's been an early investor in everything from Twitter to Bitcoin. He serves on the boards of Facebook, eBay, Oculus VR, and more. He's one of the most innovative people in the industry. Part of what makes Mark so good at his job is his ability to look at the big picture. He's a devoted student of the history of technology, and knowing the past has helped him to make some excellent bets on the future. He knows a good idea when he sees one. So we figured talking about ideas, good ideas, bad ideas, old ideas, new ideas— we figured this would be a great place to start our conversation. We started out by asking Mark a really broad question. Is there even such a thing as a new idea? How often do you come across an idea that you're like, that I've never seen that before. I've never seen anything like it. That's 100% new. Or how often are they just reconfigurations of other ideas? It's really rare. So usually if something looks like a new idea, it's just because you don't know the lineage of all the failed attempts that came before. So there's a prehistory to basically everything, like everything traces back. You think it's new, but it turns out there was a startup that tried it five years ago and 10 years ago and 20 years ago. And there was something in a lab 30 years ago. And, you know, Leonardo da Vinci dreamed it up in 1575. Right. <laughs> right. We've all just been recycling it. <laughs> there's tons and tons of stories. And so as an example, television was actually invented in like the late 1800s, um, originally invented as mechanical television. How did that work? Uh, it was literally spinning wooden blocks. What would it show, though? <laughs> Not much. <laughs> uh, so it was, it was literally it was literally um, it was literally spinning wooden blocks representing pixels. Um, and how many pixels were not, on the screen? Not a lot. <laughs> you know, it's like I don't, you know, I'm guessing it's something like eighty by forty or something like that. Like it. And so basically, what the contemporary accounts at the time were basically that, like, if you squinted, like you, you could occasionally could get an image of a person. But like, it, it was just like an embarrassment. Like it's like thirty years of complete failure, and then uh, and then and then. 
finally the technology got to the point you could do it electric electrical basically electronic and then and then it worked um the fax machine was invented in the 18, 1870s it was invented in the 1870s commercialized in the 1970s that the fax machine was invented before the telephone so why didn't it work in 1870 like is is how much of it is a technical problem yeah, like right. we're missing something how much, how much of a distribution problem i mean yeah, yeah, right. you can only fax to someone else who has a fax machine this is the problem right the first fax machine is useless right, right? the first by the way the first telephone is useless right the first television set is useless all these things are the first yeah. you know the first computer was useful but the first computer connected to the internet was useless right right and so yeah the network how do you boot up the network effect like how do you get these things going and so it so it, i mean it really is like the trillion dollar question and so my, my assessment is it's like the devil's in the details so there's no general answer but it's like there's like three kind of primary threads to pull on one is like the technology thread of like when is the technology actually ready in the in the way that the thing is actually going to work so that's one then there's side of the economics kind of question which is like when is this thing actually cost effective right uh, for like normal human beings um, how can you mass produce it yeah so exactly you get to the point of being able to have a network produce it mass produce it and also mass consume it right like or may or mass mass market it right be able to be able to actually get it out in, 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 to some level of volume and then and then i think the, the the third thing is there's like a psychological like a sociological component to it so, so one of my theories, one of my theories is like basically like there's there's a, which I hope is wrong, but like it may just be that there is a fixed number of new ideas the world can absorb every year, and the world right. can just absorb. So I you get know. to like number ten. You're, we've got ten new ideas. You, if you have the most amazing idea, but it's number eleven. Too bad. Sorry, our brains are full. You know, it's kind of, it's, it's like path dependency. Well, I'll give you I'll give you another like another my other favorite example. So there was a company called uh, Autoped, I believe was the name, uh, in 1910, um, and they brought to market uh, the electric scooter. Um, and yes, 100. percent Yeah, you can't see facial expressions in the podcast. Unbelievable. Fre- <laughs> Freddie has the appropriate. <laughs> Freddie has the appropriate facial expression. And if yeah. you if you Google if you Google Autoped, like there's images online, and like literally, it's like people on. It looks exactly like people using 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 Lime. It looks right. exactly like somebody using an electric lime scooter, which is one, one of our companies, right? Um, and like, it's this, the same freaking thing. Now, you know, it's the, yeah. the modern version, like self, you know, it's balancing, yeah. it's, it's better in a bunch of ways, but like it's an, it's an electric scooter. They would plug it in, charge it, and then they would go scoot. Probably different battery technology. Different battery maybe. technology. Yeah. But well, they were, a lot of the original cars were electric cars, right? The internal combustion engine like was harder to get to work than the electric car. So a lot of the early cars were electric. Right. Um, and so, you know, these, yeah. So so anyway, it's it's the answer to your question, I think, is it's it's what, what they, what the mathematicians call path dependency. Um, and so it's like it, it's 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 one long chain of kind of it depends, right? Um, and it's kind of I think it's like this kind of multi-threading of um, this combination of the technical component, the economic component, and the, the psychological component, which is because it's it's like well, it's part of it's like who believes? Like you have to believe it's going to work to get the love to put the level of money and effort against getting it to work in a way that's going to cause people to be able to evaluate it for you to discover whether it's going to work. And so if there's like a lack of confidence, then it won't happen. So when you talk about the path dependency, that means that at any given moment along the path, if you get to a depends and the answer's you know, no, it won't work, you know, won't happen, then you're off the path. Yeah, you can get, you can get it's, it's knocked over. off. You, you can get, get knocked, knocked off. off. Well, here's another example. So AI, AI, right? So AI, AI was an idea. AI emerged immediately upon the invention of the computer. The minute they actually got the computer working, let's say, like immediately it was like, let's get the thing to think like a person, right? And then they had no conception of how to do it, but like they immediately started to work on that problem. And then basically, right, AI went through, you know, basically I think it's our partner, Frank, I think it's like six cycles of death and rebirth. Right, where, where you know, sort of, it's it's going to work and then it doesn't work and then it's going to work and it doesn't work. But but then there's this like valley of death or like nuclear fallout during this period where everybody's like convinced the whole thing's not going to work because they tried and failed. And and so and there was literally like so when I got to the valley in the early '90s, like there had been a giant AI boom in the '80s in the valley and it had it basically 
it didn't work. And so people just gave up. And so AI was like almost thoroughly discredited, right? Until basically 2012. What if, in a the, very, you need very a new generation who didn't, couldn't remember that that had happened. Well, so that was part of it. And then okay. you also needed, honestly, some people who were at that point were, let's say, of advanced age who had, had not given up, right? And so, and, and now, now that it works, now there's going to be a giant surge. There is a giant surge underway of, of, of training and everybody's all excited about it. But like everybody gave up. And it's sort of like, well, the counterfactual. Well, you know, we got it to work in 2012. If people had been more confident that it could work, would they have gotten it to work in 2002 instead of 2012? Maybe. Where were you at in the early 90s when you first got here vis-a-vis -vis AI? Were you already thinking in this way? Were you already thinking about the future? Were you already thinking about path dependency? I mean, I know you obviously weren't involved in AI, but almost mm. as a hobby, were you thinking about these no. things? No, no, no. I just, I thought AI had failed. Yeah. yeah, no, no, no <laughs> I, it. AI had failed. I just thought it was a pipe dream. Well, because it, it, it had been a pipe dream. Like it, it had been it, it, AI by the early '90s had been a pipe dream for 50 years, right? And so at some point, like, is this sort of the thing? Like at some point, people try and fail to do something for 50 years. Like there are two possible conclusions you can draw. One is that was a bad idea, and the other is well, it's right, wrong. it's right around the corner. Yeah. Right, and which which is the more logical expe expectation, right, to have? And and, we, and I think we all fall into that. By, by the way, like. This is one of those things where just because somebody is super optimistic or aspirational about the thing they care about, you'll you'll find they tend to also be very um, they tend to be very negative on everything else that they're not working on. Like so, <laughs> I've met very few people who are perpetually optimistic about about all ideas maybe being right around the corner. Like al almost nobody's like that. So there are very few ideas that are actually new, and most of those ideas aren't even good ideas. Freddie, you've had a lot of bad ideas <laughs> over the years. Let's talk about them. Let's. <laughs> <laughs> you started a recycling business in elementary school that you foisted off on your brother for $7. Sold at a great profit. Right. It went bankrupt. It did, right after I sold it. You had a tennis racket restringing business. In high school. That also went bankrupt. That, that Congratulations. Went I didn't even sell that one to anyone. Yeah, there was nothing to sell. <laughs> no, what about no. the machine? What the about machine, the restringing machine? I think I wrote it off as as. Do you as still have it? Bad debt. Do you do you restring your own tennis rackets? No, to this I don't know day? what happened to that machine. No. I think my parents probably threw it away when I went to college. You had a mixed martial arts business plan. I don't think you ever quite got that off the ground. No, I did actually raise funds though. I then had to return the funds to the investors. Uh, that that hurts. Yeah, yeah. So good job there. You had a business in South America that ended up getting caught up in both a revolution and the dot-com meltdown, so there was that. But you actually had an idea that, that I thought, surprisingly, was, was pretty good. It was a finance program app that, that was tailored to young kids and taught them how to save and invest. Yeah, 2007, 2008, a lot of my friends were starting to have uh, children that were of school age. Basically, they were looking for ways in which they could uh, teach their kids about money, give them allowance, have some control over it, but also show them some liberty. And so I came up with a business idea around building uh, PayPal meets Mint.com for 5 to 13-year-olds. Did you have a name for the business? It was PayPal meets Mint.com for 5 to 13-year-olds. <laughs> you never I did, got to I the did name? have a name for what the business. The I, can't I can't remember. You can't remember? Name. I can't remember what the name was. Well, maybe that's, that's a sign. So bad ideas. <laughs> maybe that's a sign <laughs> of why the business didn't work. Why didn't you pursue it? Uh, I didn't pursue the business uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, I went out and did a, a bunch of market research. And uh, people, I spoke with a number of folks who built payment companies. And they told me how onerous the process was for entrepreneurs. You had to go file tax returns in 50 different states and all sorts of legislation and other things. 
number one. But number two, and I think much more importantly, is I was not ready to dedicate the next 10 years of my life to build this company. I just didn't have that passion. I didn't have any kids. I didn't really have the problem. I thought it was interesting, but it was not something I was willing to focus on for the next decade. That's interesting to me, though, because you obviously were interested in it enough to invest a lot of time in building out a business plan and researching the tax implications and the regulatory environment. So you were passionate about it to some extent. So how do you decide when you've reached the appropriate level of passion? I think the question is, are you willing to dedicate the next five to 10 years of your life to one specific project? We talked to Mark about precisely this problem that as a founder, you're faced with the problem of having to choose one thing and go all in. You do get more than one swing, which is like you do get, like if you've got- You, you get know, a couple swings. You get a couple swings. But not a hundred. Yeah, you, you know, the, the, you know the, the term pivot, right? Right, the, the, right, right, yeah, right. right. Um, we, we used to, but we, can, is this a family podcast or can I swear? You can, can swear. swear. You gotta okay. pay her yeah. 25 cents for every swear word, but she's got a, this is her college. How about Bitcoin? Do you take Bitcoin? We take, she, <laughs> okay. she takes Bitcoin. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we, in the old days, we used to call them fuck ups. Yeah. Um, now you, now you, they you, pivot. Now you fancy, you fancy better educated founders call them pivots. Much better term. Um, <laughs> and so, um, less pejorative, new, less, new, pe- new less pejorative connotation. It sounds so strategic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if it's a pivot, yeah, right? we it's planned. It's yeah, all yeah. very, very carefully planned. So, um, yeah. So you, you know, you do get some, you do get some swings. Right? You, and sometimes it takes a while. You got to iterate in yep. some cases, right? Because you, you learn as you go. Um, and so you do get a few. But yeah, no. Look, you have to have. There's no question. You have to have a much deeper level of of, of confidence and and frankly, knowledge and understanding. Like I think the thing that's maybe a diversion, but I think the thing that's most under that is least understood about the best founders is their level of depth in what they're doing is just much, much deeper. So yeah, the, the yeah. cliche of the founder is, oh, it's a kid with a crazy idea and blah, 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 right? You know, it's like, it's like, no, it's like somebody who's like thought about this stuff for like five years, 10 years, 15 years. They're like super deep. It may or may not be visible, but they're like, they're actually super deep on it. And they've been, they've been coming at whatever the thing is for a long time, maybe in different ways. You yeah. know, maybe, maybe they started out in, in college or you know, like, like you guys, yeah. you know, maybe it was working at a, at a bigger company and you know, you're kind of, you're kind of revolving around it. And so by the time you start the company, you just know so much about it. Yeah. That you have a level of confidence on it that even we can't match. Which is why it always makes me laugh when someone's like, well, I don't want to tell you too much about my idea. Because, and I said, why? Well, because you might do it. And it's like, hang on. First of all, that means I must have the 10 or 20 years of experience you have. Second of all, it means I'm going to stop everything I'm doing and just do this for five years. And then third of all, I'm assuming that if you're talking to me about it, you've already done some amount of work. So I'm already that far behind you. And then you give them that explanation. They're like, then it goes one of two ways either. Okay, I'll tell you everything, give me some feedback, or I'm not gonna tell you anything, in which case, you know, we move on. Yeah. So there's okay. a famous, somebody has a famous line, it's such as like, if your idea, never be worried about telling somebody your idea. If your idea is any good, you're gonna have to beat people into, into uh, accepting it. Right. right, they're not gonna want they're it. Not gonna they're want not gonna it, want right? it. And so. Yeah. <laughs> so they have to keep doing exactly what you did as an entrepreneur, which is you need to keep beating your head against the wall until you get the technology right. You need to figure out the psychology that you're actually gonna spend all your time doing this. And then do you put distribution in the same category as economics? Because I would argue that one of the pivots that we made was a distribution pivot. So I would put maybe a little bit of both. So I would say a little bit psychology, a little bit economics, which is like a big part of distribution, I think, is psychology, which is like, you know, getting the customer to believe in the thing, right? Getting them to understand it, know it, want it, right? Establishing product market fit. Right. Like there, there's obviously a technology component to product market fit, but there's the market part of it, just sort of a market psychology thing. Like, are people ready for this thing? Or how do you, you know. If, how do you convince them? How do you convince somebody they want something they didn't, they didn't even know existed yesterday? Right. Right. So there's a big psychological component right. to that. But then, yeah, to your point, it then immediately becomes an economic question because 
because then it becomes a question of like, okay, how are you going to afford to go convince the people you need to convince, yeah. right? And then how much money are they going to pay you such that you can then afford to go yeah. convince more people? We are always talking to our entrepreneurs about Right, cracking the code on the on the economics of distribution is as is as important as getting the product right, right? Because the world is a very big place. People are already very busy. They've already right. Their mind has already been colonized by all the new ideas this year. They don't have any room left, like by default. Does that mean you have, if you got an idea, you should pitch it in January before that, before you get full up? for the year? Probably true. If <laughs> Get in early. So, so there's, I don't think there, there's no idea purge in December is the problem. It's a, <laughs> right. it's a, it's a rolling process. That would be a good idea though. Uh, at the beginning, you said when I was asking about uh, are there truly new ideas, you said very rarely have you come across a truly new idea in the last 10 15, 20 years? I think only to the extent that I didn't know the prehistory. Like, like yes, yes. Well, what was that feeling? Like, can you think of oh, one? Oh, you're just like, wow. It's just like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of examples because it's so rare, but like, yeah, you do every once in a while. Octa. Like, oh, wow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was going to bring it up, but I couldn't. I'm so glad that you did. Thank you. Well, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, the Octabet was not, so the-, the it, it was actually, a his, it's a historical thing where, yeah. where I'll let you- well, yeah. So the the idea of what Okta did was not a new idea. The idea that cloud that it was going to be cloud cloud first, cloud native, um, and that that was going to be the thing that was a, that was a new idea. It's a, it's a very it's a classic example. There was a prehistory to it. It just turned the, the big leap was just like the prehistory kind of didn't matter because the the world going forward was going to be different because the world going forward was going to be cloud first, you know, and most importantly, and that that was going to you know, and then basically our, our kind of macro the way we think about these things is like basically when there's an architecture change, basically architecture change from on-prem applications being the most important thing, the cloud applications being the most important thing, that's an architecture change. And then the nature of architecture changes is that generally speaking, it's a new set of companies because generally speaking, it breaks the assumptions of the current generation of products. The existing vendors can't adapt because they've just, they, all their conceptions of how the world works now all of a sudden are wrong. And then you, you, you need new companies and that, and that's so, and sort of, that's sort of the role of startups is to kind of build yeah. the things for the new architecture is sort of the, that was the best elevator pitch. We should have hired you as our first sales rep 10 years ago. There we yeah. go. Okta had the marvelous attribute of, of we got laughed at for funding it. Like, <laughs> like, like, like <laughs> multiple times. Like, I think, well, and, the, yeah, yeah. and in the series B too, in the fall yeah. one too. Yeah. Yeah. And it was literally like, don't you, isn't it obvious that this problem has already been solved? Right. Isn't it obvious that these big system vendors that have single sign on systems already solve this? Isn't it obvious that, you know, yeah, people are going to have a handful of cloud apps or SaaS apps, but they're not going to have a lot of them. I mean, that would be silly. Right. Right. Real companies will never go to the cloud. Like there, there were like eight different reasons to laugh at it. And, and, and by the way, that for us is like catnip. That's like, a, you know, we get like right. super, super excited. You know, What's it it's basically like the best venture formula of all time at the heart of it is laughed at and growing fast is just like the best. Oh God. That's the perfect. <laughs> you cannot have enough of those. I mean, those are the monsters. A lot of what Mark is talking about here, about the winning formula for venture capitalists and how founders have to have an incredible depth of knowledge about one thing and one thing only, a lot of that is only really apparent in hindsight, right? It's easy to sort out the good ideas from the bad ones once the dust has settled. But Freddie, tell me how it feels when you're in the middle of it. For instance, did you know that Okta was part of a huge shift in computing architecture at the beginning? Like, at the time, did you feel like, oh, I've been thinking about business the wrong way, and now I need to think about it in a new way, and that's what Okta is? Well, I think there's a few things there. I think, uh, first of all, you're probably right. It's easy in hindsight to say those were small businesses. At the time, they seemed like genius, huge ideas to me. When you're seven or eight or nine years old, and you're getting dollars in every month, uh, you know, to go play arcade games. That's a huge amount of money. But even flash forward to, you know, your 20s and 30s, these other ideas... You know, well, they were never big enough that I pursued any of them full time. 
Yeah. Right. The only one I ever pursued full time was the business that we built in in South America, um, and that one did go very well until it didn't go very well anymore. So the other ones were always hobbies. And by the way, it was actually Mark uh, Andreessen uh, at a uh, social event where I ran into him in 2005, who told me you can never do two things excellently at the same time. So whatever you're going to do, make sure that that is the one thing you're going to do. Ultimately, I ended up doing all these other things as hobbies. I never invested full time in them. But Mark is doing a million things. Yeah, well, clearly, you know, he's Mark and I'm not. <laughs> he wanted you to focus this one. He did. <laughs> he's like, I'm investing in you to create shareholder value. <laughs> yeah. It was a trick. It was a trick. It was a trick that he played five years before he invested in me. Right. He got you ready. So, you know, you say that you'd gone to biz school and that changed the way you thought about business and you worked in VC and that changed the way you thought about business. Uh, for those of us who haven't gone to biz school, maybe you can just summarize what you learned right now in a, like a couple sentences so that we can like save all the money. Uh, go after big markets, build awesome teams, and then product is actually 10% of it. Because if you're in a giant market and you have an awesome team and the product's not perfect, you'll pivot the product right? You'll modify the product. But if the market's not big enough and not growing very fast, if you're trying to take market share in a very stable, mature industry where it's not growing at all and people are optimizing on margins, you're not going to be able to build a big business. And if your team is not awesome, you won't be able to make those changes. Well, luckily now we don't need to go to biz school because you just told us what you learned in, well, how, was it two years? Two years? You, and how much did you pay? 18 months. 18 months. All that time, all that money. <laughs> And now we just heard it right there. 70% market, 20% team, 10% product. Done. There you Boom. go. Boom. Boom. Business school. We all you just got MBAs. You can send me checks. <laughs> You're welcome. You mentioned, Freddie, the importance of putting together the right team. Uh, and we also talked about that with Mark Andreessen. So let's get back into it and hear from Mark again. Ninety percent is the people. It's it's a people business. Well, like we all sit around all day and talk about technology and economics and think that we're experts. And then most of us just like who are you who are you working with, right? And 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 then what are their characteristics and their principles? And then what are they going to be like to be partners with? And then right, how hard are they going to work? And are they going to give up? Are they going to quit? Right? And are they going to make it work? And obviously right. that's where you looked at Freddie when you said, "Are they going to quit?" Taller, that was <laughs> much taller and better looking when we started. Yeah, exactly. But these things happen. Uh, market sizing, the economics, the technology, you can probably do a bunch of customer surveys, you can do all these other things. And then you just said, yeah, but 90% of it is totally subjective. So it's at least 90%, maybe. <laughs> at least. <laughs> maybe more, maybe more. So Arthur Rock is one of the legendary VCs. Uh, he funded, among other companies, Intel and Apple. So quite an outstanding track record. He worked for 30 years. Um, and uh, he wrote a paper at the, end of the, at the end of the whole thing. And he looked at all of his results in the rearview mirror. And he said, honestly, I would have done much better if I had shredded all the business plans uh, on receipt and just read the resumes and just met with the people. Oh, wow. Um, okay. And, and, and bear in mind, right, in venture, in venture is a funny business because there are two forms of errors. There's the error of I back something that fails, and then there's the error of I don't back something that succeeds. Right. And, right. And in venture economics, I back something that fails kind of doesn't matter because that's built into the model. I don't back something that succeeds is just a like killer. torture for decades. <laughs> right, right. You say that 90% of it is the person uh, or the team, maybe. And for our listeners who are sitting out there outside of the norm, somebody who's not in Silicon Valley, somebody who's not perhaps got the classic resume, is there something you would say to them? And, and also, how do you keep yourself open to, uh, to people outside of the norm? 
not just ideas outside the norm. So I'm super blunt on that. You got to get you got to get in the middle of it. Um, so the myth, the, the myth that you will hear, right, is that oh, you VCs, like you, yeah, you 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 meet with all these people who are like hyper networked and hyper extroverted, and like they're kind of in the flow and in the mix, and they're all these kind of undiscovered geniuses, right? There are all these people out there in the middle of no, you know, middle of no, you know. I grew, look, by the way, I grew up in rural Wisconsin. Like I know middle of nowhere. Hey, well, <laughs> undiscovered genius. <laughs> undiscovered. They've got discovered. It came to freaking Silicon Valley, like the first the first chance he had, right? So, but there are all these people out there, and they're you know, so it's like the whole like Edison versus Tesla thing. It's like, oh, the misunderstood genius Nikolai Tesla had all these great ideas and everybody was too dim to see them. And it's kind of like, well, the problem with that is it's not just the person and it's not just the idea. It's the ability to build the team. Like it, it, it's, it's never a solo thing. It's always like, okay, can you put together a team? Like, can you recruit resources around you? Can, can you recruit a team of co-founders around you? Can you recruit a team of executives, a team of engineers, right? And then can, and then can you can you attract resources, right? Can, can you attract investment capital? Can you, can you go get customers, right? Can you go get articles written about you in the press? Can you go do all these things that you need to do to be able to make the thing you, work? You couldn't do it in Wisconsin. You can't, well, I mean, you might be able to do it, but you'd have to attract all those resources around you in Wisconsin. My, my point is the kind of person, the kind of person who's going to make one of these things work is not going to be working by themselves somewhere. They're going to be in the middle. They, they, they're going to be in the mix because they're going to have to be in the mix because they have to be in the mix to get the resources to do, to, to, to be able to execute the thing that they want to execute on. Here, I'll give an example. So the pitch. So why in 2018, you know, why do the entrepreneurs all come to our office and like give a hour long PowerPoint presentation? Like how antiquated is that? Because it's been done forever. That's well, why it's been done forever. That's, a, that's actually, so I would argue that's not the reason. Okay. Um, I would argue the reason is because if you can't do that, it's a test. If you can't do that, then how are you going to pitch the customer? And how are you going to pitch a recruit? And how are you going to pitch the next investor after us? Right? So how are you going to do all the other things that you're going to do? You're going to get five minutes for each of those. I would argue then they should just do a five minute, like what Todd and I did, because you were like, you guys are terrible at PowerPoint. Just tell a story. Just they should just, storytelling. Storytelling is critical. Now, most engineers can't, I mean, I would say most, most engineers who become entrepreneurs need some structure to that. I agreed. I mean, yeah, some people can come in and just talk. Most people, it's not so much the PowerPoint. It's more just like, can you show up here? Well, here's another. Here's can you get organized and present the information in a way that a potential customer is going to consume right, it and yeah. that you can answer the right questions so that they can walk out and they can say, this is going to solve a type of problem for me. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. It's a proxy for can you sell something to somebody, right? right? And so it's so the way to think about it is like, the way to think about it is like, we're the easiest. Everybody thinks raising venture capital is like the hardest. Raising venture capital is like our job is to give entrepreneurs money. Like that's our, <laughs> that's our reason for existence in the world. We're the easiest mark. Like we're it. We're all set up here. We're, you know, here, Money bags here. We're, we're handing out money. Like that's our <laughs> that's, that's our job. job. Yeah. So then the, the VC pitch is actually best understood. It's a it's a two level it's a two level thing. It's like you're actually pitching the VC. The VCs because we, we do evaluate the pitch and we can talk about that. But we're also evaluating your ability to give the pitch. Right, so it's a, it's a, there's a meta layer on top of that, which is the proxy for being able to convince everybody else, and, and that's the thing that's the thing that people outside the valley I think often miss, which is it's the aggregation of resources. You have to, I mean, think about it like going on. An, I don't even, just think about like going on an expedition. You know, 300 years ago, it's going to be the same thing. Like you and your canoe are not going to get very far down the Mississippi. Like you you have to have like a big ship and a lot of other people and like supplies and all this other stuff, and it's it's the same process, and and that's that scale is so central and important. And by the way, that's not enough. You also need the idea, but you do need to aggregate the resources. And, and that's why that's why the undiscovered that's why the undiscovered genius thing is mostly a myth. Let's talk a little bit more about trends um, and this idea of the bandwagon. Because a lot of people, if you're coming up with an idea, you're like, okay, I'm trying to think about what's out there. It's blockchain. Are we talking about blockchain? I'm gonna come up with a blockchain idea. Good idea? Bad idea? 
<laughs> so, so uh, dichotomy. Um, so the problem with the hot sector is there are too many people pursuing it. Um, uh, the problem with the cold sector, right, is it's very hard to aggregate the resources around it. And so there's a little bit of a, there's a little damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of thing there. Well, I'll give you another another kind of a slightly off axis kind of version of this, which is like, so it's sort of like half the startups we back are going after an existing market where there's lots of entrenched competition. Mm -hmm. And actually you guys were kind of an example. Yeah, of that, totally. Right. Um, and then half of our startups, it's, it, it is like literally something that the customers don't even know that they want because they've never seen it. They just don't know. Um, it it might have existed before, but they've never been confronted with it before. So it's like a brand new thing, right? So what's the problem of going of going into an the good news going into an existing market? You know it's a giant market because people are already spending a lot of money on it. There's like a budget line item that you can go after. Hundred yeah. percent, right? Now the problem is you have to convince somebody to unhook right off their off their existing vendor a lot of the time, which is very hard. The advantage of going after something where people don't have the existing line item for it is there's no competition. The problem is there's no line item. There's right. no there's not there's not budgeted. It's not budgeted, right? Yep. Um, and people have a lot of new things they could spend money on. They're not. They don't wake up in the morning and say, "Boy, I wish I could go spend more money on something new I've never even heard of." Unless it's you. Well, no. So that's the thing. That's, that's why we're the, that's why we're the easy. That's why we're the easy. That's why that's we're the, the that's why we're the easy mark. <laughs> um, and sorry, everything's harder after us. That's that is the one thing that's for sure. So, um, so it's it's a damn if you do damn. It's a grass is it's one of these grass is always greener things. Like the grass is brown on both sides of the fence. Like the grass is just always brown. Right. Um, it's just a question of like what shade of brown. Like which problem would you rather solve? So it's, it kind of goes, take, goes takes back, back to your question, which is like the good news is saying we're going to go do something in blockchain is people at least like have some sense that like there's something important happening and they're, they're, they're like open for business. They're like, they're, you know, their ears are open trying to understand it as opposed to, you know, I've, I've built a frobnoid and you don't know what a frobnoid is, but I'm going to tell you about it. Right. Yeah. But the problem is, right. There's, you know, 5,000 blockchain startups, right. You know, good luck trying to differentiate. There's not that many frobnoids. <laughs> that's, that's true. And so now, now I would say in practice, generally speaking, this question is actually not that significant for us. In that, like we we don't we don't think categorically in that way. Like we're we're not out there, for example, trying to say we need to see a hundred blockchain startups. That's not how we operate. We're we're thinking about it much more inductively. Of like, okay, who are the super smart people, right? Who are pursuing some idea, and then if it has to do with blockchain, fair enough, we want to hear. But if it doesn't, then we also want to hear from it. So we we actually try very hard to not really even have a point of view on the trends. So this is what Mark's talking about. It's not about knowing what to do. It's about what to do when. It's about the timing and making sure you get the timing of the execution of your idea right. You could have the most brilliant idea in the world, but if it's not timed right, it's never going to work. Imagine if you came up with an idea that was going to change the fabric of time. Would there ever be a bad time for that idea? No. It sounds like a big market. That sounds like a big market. <laughs> if you have that idea, call me. If you have that idea, <laughs> immediately, that's going to that's gonna hit. Yeah. That's going to be big. So a time machine that changes the fabric of the space-time continuum? Obviously a great idea. But some other ideas that have hit big maybe didn't seem so revolutionary at the time. Here's Mark on the importance of having perspective and seeing the big picture. I'm not old enough. Like I remember when eBay was a brand new idea, and the overwhelming like consensus on it was, "What a dumb idea!" Like the idea that Pez people, dispensers, Pez dispensers right? on yeah. the internet. Like right. seriously, yeah. Like seriously, like this. Like we invented like the microprocessor. Like we put a man on the moon, and this is right? what's next. And this is now we're doing fucking Pez. Sorry, excuse me. No, Pez no. <laughs> fucking Pez dispensers on the internet. <laughs> yeah, honestly. Yeah, like that's how far yeah. we've fallen. Yeah. Like that is just like the most depressing thing. Like literally garage that okay. garage sales. <laughs> yeah. Well, it turns out right. So one way you look at it is this Pez dispenser on the internet. The other way you look at it as global marketplace for, for, for goods. Like, wow. 
like an peer to peer, peer to peer liquid yep. marketplace for goods. Yep. Like it's just like a fundamental step function in human ability to transact and trade. Or you know, look when Google came out, every, Google's now obvious in retrospect. Google was like the thirty fifth search engine. Search engines number excite. Excite search yeah. engines number one through thirty four basically proved two things. Number one, search didn't work. It was not a solvable problem because the results were all terrible. And number two, there was no business model. Like those were the two things that everybody knew. Right. <laughs> right. And Google came out and had the audacity to say, no, those are both false. And and and, and actually on top of it, on top of that, Google had the, the good news from the very beginning was that they had good search results. But they when they raised venture money, you know, back way before us, when they, when they raised venture money, like they they didn't have a business model. Right. And so they just did a complete like flyer on the business model. And by the way, there's a counterfactual world in which Google never figured out the business model. Right. And they became a cautionary tale for hubristic founders. This is where I say, like, the myth is like, okay, I'm in a good position to judge this idea. And that's not really true. Um, it's more like, at best, I can maybe judge this person or get a, get a sense of potential. And then at least, like, I can have some aperture on the range of, you know, kind of, the, let's say, the characteristics of the ideas. Like, as an example, like, it's sort of the classic thing in venture is it's not will it work. It's if, if it does work, how big could it get, right? And so this is the market the market size point, right? Which is just like if, if there's only 14 potential customers for the thing, even if it works, that's probably a bad idea. But if there's 40 million potential customers for the thing, then even if it's a long shot, right, the expected return on that could be very high. Excuse me, and you do that. And then on the technology lens, it's the same thing, which is it's just like, you know, look, you know, like there are certain ideas that you just like, uh, give you an example, the kind of thing you don't want to do as a VC. Uh, I'm going to bring to market a smartphone with a battery that lasts 30% longer. Like, that's my big idea, right? And it's like, it's, it's like the world's biggest market. Like everybody like wants a smartphone. Everybody's frustrated they run out of battery life. Um, I'm going to have a smartphone that lasts 30% longer. Well, guess what? Apple's going to have that too, right? And they're going to, plus they're Apple and they're going to have all their other advantages and they're going to crush you into the ground. And so like that's a battery that lasts 30% longer is not a big enough transformation. It's not an architecture shift, right, to justify a startup. And so you, you do have to sniff out, like there has to be something that's like an order of magnitude shift in the technology. Right. The blockchain is a great example. Like blo blockchain has properties the centralized databases cannot match. Like blockchain may or may not meet all the aspirations that we have for it, but like if it works, it is doing things that existing databases simply cannot do. It's right? an architecture shift. It's an architecture shift, right? And, and therefore, if right, if it, exactly right, and so and then if it, therefore if it works, if it takes, there is highly likely to be turnover of almost all the companies having anything to do with databases, and almost everything having to do with financial services, and almost everything having to do with contracts. Like it's uh, the whole thing is which going to turn is over. a big market. Which is these are yeah these are <laughs> these are gigantic. <laughs> this is the biggest market. Yeah, these are gigantic markets, and so that that's the thing, right? And then and then it's all probability adjusted right yeah, right and then and then like i say in the portfolio we have the ability to take the failures and so that that's that's the bet but i would say a lot of it is to have the um is to have the humility have the I don't know, humility or objectivity or something or re maybe it's just emotional remove to not think that you can overjudge these things like you, you you're looking for the shape of the thing not the thing if, right if, if that makes sense and in your position you can kind of place a number of bets on the shape of the yeah, thing that's right. yeah there was something i had heard uh I don't know, this is maybe 10 years ago, that in the early 2000s, obviously, first dot-com boom, there's uh, a million ideas coming up. And they all, most of them went away. And then people started sifting through those old ideas and kind of saying, you know what? Let's do that again. What, what do you, do you remember that? And, and like, did anything actually come out of that where then it worked 10 years later? They all worked. They all worked. <laughs> <laughs> they all worked. So, so the strong form of that is basically they, they, they either all worked or they're all going to work. So, so the strong form of this theory basically is there are no bad ideas. Right. So here's, timing. here's the strong form. It's all, it's all timing. It's all timing. And it's all, to your point, it's all timing. And it's all timing intersected with those threads, technology, economics, and psychology that we were talking about. And so if you're an entrepreneur thinking about all these things, how do you think about going up against, like you were talking about, the 
I'm going to create a, a cell phone with 30% more battery. If I'm thinking I'm going to do door, you know, door-to-door delivery or warehouse to door delivery with drones, you know, really you're going to go up against Amazon? The way that we think about it basically is um, basically big companies, big companies have a special advantage in the world. They get to pursue the good ideas that look like good ideas, right? So a printer that, you know, prints out pages 20% faster is a really good idea. It looks like a good idea. HP is going to do it. Um, at 30, 30% longer battery life, Apple's going to do it. So therefore, as a consequence, what's left? What's left are the good ideas that look like bad ideas. <laughs> that's, that's your sweet spot. That's the sweet spot, right? Well, it's the sweet spot for the entrepreneur, right? Is a good idea, yeah, that's a good idea that looks like a bad idea. Like, that looks dumb. It's Microsoft's just going to do that. That's dumb, yeah. right? And by the way, like Microsoft thought that was just a simple little add-on. Like it's just, it looks like it's a, you know, it just looks like it's a kind of a dumb marginal idea. Of course, what's the problem with that? Right? They might be, they might all, just be bad ideas. All the actual bad ideas also look like bad ideas, right? <laughs> <laughs> and there are a lot more bad ideas. Well, but there's no time, such thing as bad ideas. It's purely timing. <laughs> That's exactly right. And so, so literally, it's entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs are in the business of pursuing the good ideas that look like bad ideas. And, and it's the fact that they look like bad ideas is what prevents somebody from somebody else from doing them. And then, how does a big company define a bad idea? It's something that its customers don't want. Right, and so the existing customers, the existing market it is perfectly well served, but perfectly happy with what they have. It's all these other customers that are unserved today that the big company is not even talking to. Right, is where this new idea can go into. Right, so the blockchain is a great the blockchain thing is a great example. You're not going to go sell Bank of America a blockchain piece of blockchain software to replace their IBM mainframe. Like it's just simply not going. They're happy with their IBM mainframe or their Oracle database. And so you go have to you have to go find new people, new applications, and new use cases. Right, that where, where it's just it never even occurred to IBM. Oracle to pursue that idea, right? And, and that's 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 the uh, good idea. It looks like a bad Either idea. Either that or it's just that, I think that is very true um, when you did not have what we now modernly call hyper-growth companies. In hyper-growth companies like Google, for example, I, would, I also would posit that the problem is even if you're trying to build a new idea inside Google, it's not growing fast enough to matter to Google. You know, the big thing I would argue is the big thing different about this era. Well, one is just the sheer scope and scale, right? And now it's happening to the entire world, right? right? Which it's is, no longer in pockets it, it, in the same way yeah, maybe that it was Like it's going to happen everywhere. Which right? is good for entrepreneurs. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, good. And I think also, by the way, very good for the world because it should make it, it should be possible to make much more dramatic progress over the next several decades in really important areas. Like, like health. Like health is an example. Yep. Like the introduction of computers and software and sensors into healthcare should lead to dramatic improvements in quality of living all over the world. Right. There's a lot of work to be done to deliver on that, but like that really should be possible now. Yeah. Which is one of the reasons you guys are focused on it. So the biggest, well, I mean, the only things we do focus on, we need to focus on something where there's technology change, a fundamental technology change happening. So there's, there's still a lot of human activity where that's not the case. So we're, we're focused on the stuff where there's big tech change. The big thing I think is there are these really big sectors. Healthcare is one, transportation is another, um, but then there's also um, you know education, uh, financial services. I would also say law is another example. You know, construction, real estate. Um, there are these gigantic sectors of the economy that have actually not been touched that much by tech yeah. until now. <laughs> construction so, is a perfect right, example. Construction, right? right construction. Jeez. Why are the houses not getting much better and much cheaper extremely quickly? More like, quickly, yeah. Right. It, it, it should. It should. You know. And then why does everybody, at least in, you know, in, in the U.S., who builds a house, go through the nightmare of you know the stuff that you go through? Like, why can't why can't why can't you have a new house up in two weeks that's just like so much better than what you spend two years building right now? It just doesn't seem to make any sense. And so, like, there's this giant right vista, right? 
competitive opportunity for that, right? Another is going to be like the self-driving car. Um, another part of that is geography, right? So the car created the suburbs, right? The self-driving car might create, you know, might really build out, you know, whatever's beyond that. And so, um, you know, and, and yeah, so, and you know, it's, it's, it's too early to tell, but like it may be that that fundamentally reshapes our whole idea of like land utilization. It may be that, it may be that that's the thing that breaks this whole issue right now, which is, you know, the, the rising cost, you know, price of housing in, in all the, you know, right. in all the cities. Maybe that that's the way to break it. Right. Or, then, or even just a simpler version of that. So you've got all the cars that are like incredibly dangerous, right? You've, you've got all the pollution, all the environmental impact and all the noise and everything else. And then you've got all this land that's misused in like really prime areas. And so like, what if you could convert all that to basically, let's just say convert it to parkland, right? And what if you could transform cities into like a much friendlier, like live work environment, right? Than, than, than anything we've conceived of today. Um, and so, you know, you, could, you basically, you, could, you might be able to completely reshape the whole idea of what a city is and the whole idea of what a suburb or an exurb is and like really change patterns of living in a really, in a really positive way. One of the things I loved that Mark said was, if your idea is any good, you're going to have to beat people into accepting it. You may feel like you've got a great idea, but in all likelihood, nobody else will. <laughs> and it's probably a pretty lonely place. Definitely a very lonely place. I think that's one of the key takeaways about this early stage of starting a company is, hopefully you're you know thrilled and excited with your idea, but probably nobody else will be, and so you're going to have to get used to that feeling of loneliness. It's actually uh, pretty ironic because as you start building that company, you know, within a few years, if you're fortunate and it starts going well and you start hiring more people and raising more money, uh, then people are going to say, well, what's this market called? And so if you're the only one in the market, the question is, is it really a market? So you actually have to have competitors and you have to have all these validating things. So it's it's pretty it's pretty ironic that you have to start by saying I'm going to do this thing that uh, no one has ever done before and everyone's going to say it's ridiculous and then very quickly it has to flip to being like oh that's a genius idea look all these other people are doing it right it's pretty hard to convince people that it's a giant market when nobody sees it yeah I think that's true I think it's actually interesting that if you look at the data most successful startups come with entrepreneurial teams that are from two to four or five people. So one doesn't work and over five doesn't work either. One doesn't work because it's super lonely. And when things are going south, you have no one to talk to. You have no one to bounce the idea off of. You could say, yeah, I'm actually just the only crazy guy here and no one else thinks this is a good idea. Over five, there's just too many cooks in the kitchen. There's too many voices. You can't actually get anything done. So it's, it's pretty interesting that two, three, four are the ideal teams so that when it is so lonely, there's someone else there that w with you. Almost everybody that we're going to hear from in this series are not solo entrepreneurs. In fact, I can't think of any of them who are solo entrepreneurs. Maybe Fred Luddy it was, was solo. To uh, some Fred was solo. He hired his brother uh, pretty early on. Um, but, I guess, but you look at it was Ben and Mark. You you look at Salesforce. You, that was a team. Yeah. You, you look at Workday. Workday. That was a team. You look at Netflix. It was a team. That was a team. You look at Eventbrite. It was a team. Yeah, it's yeah. a very good point. You have to convince people. Mm -hmm. I think that's the takeaway. Come up with whatever crazy idea you want, and then start to convince people. Which is a very very tricky topic and one that needs its entire own series of podcasts on. That'll be season two. <laughs> That'll be season two. <laughs> With that, we'd like to take a couple moments to quickly thank Mark for taking time out of his day and very busy schedule to speak with us. 
We'd also like to thank the Martin Trust Center for MIT Entrepreneurship for collaborating with Okta to bring this podcast to life. If you like what you've heard and you want to know more, check out exclusive in-depth stories from each episode on fastcompany.com. And to hear the next step in taking a company from zero to IPO, make sure to subscribe and give us a good rating on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Joshua Davis. And I'm Frederick Karest, and we hope you'll tune in for episode two. So, you think you're a genius? The whole notion of getting another job was just not, not, not appealing. I thought, well, I've worked for enough people. I ought to see if I'm as smart as I think I am. <laughs> <laughs>